Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We're going to continue through Nicaea. And uh, I realize that the fatal flaw of this whole series is its name. Um, because while it's called through Nicaea, remember we're talking about the Nicene Creed as it was uh, penned in Constantinople in 381. So just make sure that you keep that historical fact in mind whenever you look up the Nicene Creed. It's the 381 Creed of Constantinople. Um, and I was like, you know what? Through Constantinople would have been a mouthful. Through Nicaea is more catchy. So we're just going to have to run with it. Regardless, today we're going to be looking at a bigger chunk of the Creed. Um, in the last two episodes, we have looked at sections. Uh, we believe uh, in one God, the Father, and now we're going to look at the almighty maker of heaven and earth and all that is seen and unseen. And the reason why is because they're all tightly related and the historical and theological content of these sections are pretty easy for us. They're pretty um, intuitive in our context. They're pretty well known in our context. They're, they're the easiest. It's kind of like monotheism. Uh, monotheism was relatively easy. So... Let's jump into it. Uh, this one could be a little bit shorter, and I'm just going to leave it that way because I don't want to mix and match too many sections of the creed um, at one time. So if it's shorter, then, uh, well, then that's the way it'll be. So for this particular episode, we're actually going to lump the historical uh section the biblical support section and the application section together for this whole phrase but we're going to break it up still into bits and pieces here and so we're going to start off by talking about the almighty um first off the almighty shouldn't be taken as inherently or exclusively linked to the father as we often take it um additionally we shouldn't understand it as an adjective or um an adjective of a divine attribute or a divine attribute um, because sometimes that's kind of how we um, take the Almighty, that it's an adjective describing an attribute of God or is an attribute of God. But the translation, where this term comes from, um, it's actually used very minimally. But where it comes from is translating the Hebrew name El Shaddai um, as Almighty. And so it links back to the Latin and Greek languages not having an equivalent um, of this title. And so we find the term come to be Almighty. So to summarize, the term is not um, a mere adjective, but a title. Um, and the general sense conveyed by this title is that God was the ruler of all things, or as uh, Gerald Bray says, um, a status that belonged to him by virtue of the fact that he had created all things, or them is what he says, but I said all things for the sake of context. Um so this idea was extended logically to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, uh, yet for whatever reason, the title isn't applied to the Son or the Spirit in the Nicene Creed. In fact, you won't see it um, applied to them until like the 5th century. But the 6th century Western Creed, uh, the so-called Athanasian Creed, though Athanasius did not pen it, would come to apply Almighty to all three persons. But again, this creed was not written by Athanasius, and this creed was never adopted by any council, nor was it known in the East. And uh, now that it is known, it's rarely acknowledged because of the filioque. 
uh, clause. And so if they use it, they have to remove that clause. Um, so the Athanasian Creed clearly makes that, you know, that application of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all almighty. And then as we go through, you know, church history, eventually that will become commonplace. Which, by the way, a sidebar here, um, I have killer allergies today, if you can't tell. So I apologize for um, voice cracks and all that jazz that comes with, with that kind of nonsense. So let's move forward. So ultimately, the term, the Almighty, should denote an emphasis on monotheism over and against other so-called Almighty gods. Now, if we think about the Creed and how it's broken up, we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then to each there's an ascribed set of descriptions, right? Well, so why is the emphasis on the Father being creator? And that's usually because the early church writers would typically, um, or I would say logically placed the Father first whenever speaking about these things. And so the formula would be something like the Father created all things through the Son in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. Those prepositions um, become a little matter of debate in the early church, but that was the general formula. So logically the Father comes first, but it's not this type of subordinationism. It's just the logical order of how the triune God works together. Um, so this emphasis shouldn't be misunderstood because the church recognized the role of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in creation. Irenaeus in Against Heresies, for example, says God has had in himself the word and wisdom, the Son and the Spirit, by whom and in whom freely and spontaneously he made everything that exists, and that's 424. And then he also says the Father plans everything well and gives his commands, the Son executes them and then performs the work of creation, and the Spirit nourishes them and gives them increase. And that's 438.3. So for the next section, for maker of heaven and earth, seen and unseen, Christians all held that the world was created by a good God who is a personal being and who was involved in creation via providence. So the issues that arose on this point for the early Christians had to do with theodicy. That is the problem of evil. Classic. Everyone's discussed it at some point in church history. And then they would also address the Gnostics. Um, dualism, pantheism, and we'll talk about those here in a little bit. But one of the stresses certainly had to do with theodicy and the, the Trinitarian work of creation, especially against the, the Arians in saying that the Son and the Holy Spirit were not creatures and not a part of creation, but are rather creator. So we have a handful of things that are addressed by this positive confession. And... Um, Whenever it comes to paganism, with polytheism, there were there was this idea in polytheistic ideas that maintained that matter was eternal. Does that sound familiar? And the world developed from pre-existing matter. And then sometimes you would have a deity that would be creator, but they were still within the bounds of the materialistic world and they had some kind of beginning. So like Gaia and Greek mythology was hatched from an egg in one story and then created all of the earth. And therefore there's creator still that creator had a beginning because material world was eternal and existed for Christians. However, matter was created by God out of nothing. So contrary to this idea that, um, 
a pre-existent matter would come to form people and gods. Christians maintain that God created matter, and then matter must have some type of origin from a source, i.e. God, which really we hear that quite often in our day, right? Um, matter doesn't just come out of nothing. There has to be that first cause. So for Christians, there was this intelligence behind creation rather than mere happenstance in the midst of chaos, forming matter into living organisms and things of that nature. So just as well, uh, we find this countering of Gnostic teachings by saying that creation was good. If you remember Gnostics, they taught that matter was inherently evil and that the the supreme being would not create um, the materialistic world, but rather it was the mistake of a mediary. So it was for Christians through sin and misuse of that good creation that things became corrupt. So the natural world was inherently created good, but sin and misuse corrupted it. Um, and so the early church spent a good amount of time writing about the good gift and wonders of God with an emphasis on God over the gods of polytheism who were limited and bound to the created and materialistic world. So it goes something like this. Um, the polytheistic gods were stuck within the materialistic world because matter was eternal. And Christians said, well, we can take it one step further. Our God created matter. Our God is over your God. Um, so that was a significant argument to be seen. This emphasis on the good creation of God stretched into um, from that which is seen to that which is unseen. So with, again, with rebellion and corruption being the fault for evil spirits rather than a type of spiritual dualism or something like that. So to summarize this section, the confession countered pantheism, materialism, dualism, polytheism, and of course, Gnosticism. Uh, and for our application, we'll focus on the first three and better define them. But first, let's uh, move into the biblical support uh, for the confession. So the biblical support, the Bible makes clear that God created the universe out of nothing, which is often described via the famous Latin phrase ex nihilo. So before anything, before the universe, time, space, or matter existed, only God existed. And this can be found in the creation account in Genesis 1. And of course, Genesis 1-1 is famous as it states that in the beginning time, God created the heavens and the earth, space and matter. Um, and sometimes we limit heaven to be a place where we live with God post-revelation, but it should be understood as space as well. And many times you'll see this usage in scripture. So we find God creating time, space, and matter in Genesis 1-1, and this text obviously parallels with John 1-1, which tells us that it was the Logos, or the Word, who was the agent of creation. And Genesis 1 also points to Holy Spirit's active work in creation. Psalm 33 echoes this earlier than John. Um, in fact, you'll find this kind of echoed throughout all the Old Testament. But John is where the word taking on flesh becomes fully revealed. But the Psalms and Genesis point out that it is by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made and all of their hosts by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood forth. And that's Psalm 33, 6 and 9. And when you start reading Second Temple Judaistic literature, or you even start reading some of the later um, commentaries, they're basically paraphrases of the Old Testament that are commentaries uh, to summarize, they'll actually put this emphasis too, that the word was the means by which God created. And so that idea of divine logos is significant. But regardless, in John 1, 1 through 3, as we mentioned, uh, points out that it's through the word 
Jesus that all things were made, and without him not anything made was made. And this is also pointed out in Colossians 1. It says, quote, For in him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, end quote. And so you'll see the terminology from Colossians directly you know, employed in the Nicene Confession. So this section of the creed is very straightforward and simple and biblical, and it's almost obvious to us, right? Like, yeah, we know this. But the positive confession was still necessary in light of Gnostic teachings, in light of paganism and polytheism. And so here we have it. God is good. God created the material world. The material world is not inherently evil. Uh, rather, it was created good, and then sin corrupted it. And even in the midst of said corruption, it's not to of goodness, there's still goodness and beauty and God's glory that can be seen in creation. And so that's important in this context for them to stress. So in Revelation 4.11, you find the 24 elders uh, praise God as the one who created all things, and by his will they exist and they were created. In Acts and Isaiah, we find the same sentiment, that God made the whole world and everything in it, and God gave to all men, life and breath and everything. It's God who breathes life and creates. Uh, he is the resurrection is what we learn. Uh, Romans 4, 17, God is said to give life to the dead and call into existence the things that do not exist. And God is said to have formed the earth and the world. Psalm 92 and Isaiah 44, which is quite interesting, says that I alone created everything. And of course, that's Yahweh speaking, which if we connect John 1, 1 through 3, we have another uh, pointer of the deity of Christ, because it says, I, Yahweh, alone created all the heavens and the earth. But we'll get to the deity of Christ later. Regardless, we see that God is said to have formed the earth. Creation is distinct from God because he is a creator, but creation is still dependent upon God and not isolated from God. And God is a God of care, personal um involvement and providence. It's not deism where he's this impersonal, apathetic deity, but rather we are theists. So now, um, what do we do about applications? Really, there are so many applications we can make from this, uh, but I want to focus on ideologies that tend to insert themselves into Christian thought in our modern context. What we're going to talk about predominantly or exclusively are pantheism and dualism and what you find is that in our modern context, especially with New Age influence and Eastern thought, these ideas have crept into evangelical circles quite a bit. And further, you'll find that uh, movements like the Word of Faith movement lean kind of heavily into these types of ideas. And so pantheism, we'll talk about first, it's a common and popular belief that can explicitly or implicitly say that God equals the universe, or the universe is God, in other words. How this is articulated can differ dramatically, and so we're going to paint over both of these with a broad brush. hope you forgive me for that. But there was a popular book, I can't remember the name of it right now, that taught that uh, it was kind of like this pseudo-Christian pantheism, uh, which, of course, was influenced by um, Eastern thought, and then there was New Age... Um, practices mixed into it. I wish I could remember it. But basically, it went something like this. Whenever you desire something, and it's kind of linked to 
word of faith ideology, just not as Christianized. You you want something, and so you channel the divine nature, that is the universe, because you are divine and you have access to that channel. And so you become one with the universe and meditation, you channel the universe, and you claim into existence that which you desire, and it will materialize because you have the divine nature and you are part of the materialistic world, therefore you can materialize items, money, right? Or even stuff like influence. I wish I could remember the name of the book. There, there was other books that were similar to that, uh, such as The Secret. But I think The Secret was entirely secular, um, but it had the laws of attraction. Um, but the, the way it's articulated is different. So it's hard to pin it all. But regardless, we find pantheism kind of showing itself up in uh, Christian circles where the universe and nature and people are all connected in light of this oneness, not necessarily the fact that we are creatures created in the divine image, but rather that we are all part of the divine itself. And so, and so it becomes this really strange syncretism of Christianity and pantheism. And every so often I'll cross a proclaiming Christian who will say something like the universe is God in some shape or form. But the problem is, is that because creation and pantheism is part of God or God himself, depending on the articulation, we find that God, as the Bible reveals him to be, is dramatically different. Uh, and that means that the God of pantheism is an idol. In fact, it goes so far as ultimately creation becomes the object of worship. Um, as we all know, is not new, but the distinction is that this view of pantheism equates the supreme being with creation in a way that hides the idolatry for some right, because it's still God and it's not just material, but it's God. And so the, dealing with different viewpoints on how pantheism works itself out can be a little bit difficult. But ultimately, pantheism denies essential aspects of God's character. Uh, first off, it denies his immutability. It denies his personality. It denies his holiness. And it presents ramifications in regards to God's self-existence and God as creator. So first, as stated, pantheism cannot uphold God's immutability. So immutability means that God does not change. And immutability of God is clear in scripture. And so what we have is a problem when we just look at the fact that the universe is constantly moving and changing. And thus God must logically be moving and changing. Secondly, Pantheism denies God's holiness in the reality that evil has become a part of the universe through corruption. And so if evil has become a part of our reality in the universe because of sin and corruption, then God has evil that is a part of him if he is linked to creation. What's interesting here is that pantheism also and many articulations shares an aspect of Gnostic beliefs that mankind needs to be reabsorbed into the supreme being because uh, they still have divine nature within them, so to speak. And so the supreme being differs, of course, in pantheism because it can be as simple as the universe. But in the same way as Gnostic teachings, we are all fundamentally divine in some shape or form and one, and looking for reabsorption or being reunited in this oneness. So on theological grounds, pantheism falls apart uh, because of the mentions reasoned, but also on the simple grounds that God is creator, he is holy, he is above creation, he is self-existent, he has a satiety, and he is the only divine 
being, he is the Almighty, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the seen and the unseen. So the other application would be dualism, which also has influence in some shape or form in some evangelical circles. But as always, it's modified and tweaked. And so we're painting with a broad brush, but hopefully in a way that can help you apply it. So dualism presents God and the material universe as eternally existing side by side. Uh, The two forces create this conflict between God and the evil within the material universe. And it's this picture of there's this war between God and evil. And so you can probably think of a couple of ideas where this is um, articulated. But within dualism specifically, it's the material world and God. And so it's not necessarily the material world that's inherently evil that's at war with God, but the evil within the material universe. Until you get to Gnostic teachings, as we mentioned many times before. So in dualism, you have something next to God that is also eternal. Um, and evil, instead of being placed within its proper bounds as being corruption of God's good creation, is something at war with God because of the eternality of the material world. Now, like pantheism, we can think of many theological truths from Scripture to counter this. Uh, Firstly, that God is the God of creation. Second, that God is not at war with the material universe, nor is evil something that is on equal footing with God in terms of power or anything like that. And so you have the biblical reality that God is not only creator, but he governs, he forms, and he providentially upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I will say that I have seen a very common but subtle articulation of dualism sneak in to evangelical circles, and it's really Gnostic teachings. And that is that the flesh, the human flesh, is bad And so whenever Paul talks about the flesh in terms of the sinful nature, he's talking about literally the flesh is bad and that the spiritual is good. And so you you find this almost denial of the goodness of creation and that we need to rid ourselves from these bodies. And you can find this quite often, actually. I've been surprised by that. By whenever we're talking about the flesh, um, you'll find individuals talk as if we're trapped in these bodies and we need to rid ourselves of the flesh. And so... Things related to the human nature become problematic. And most of the emphasis on the corruption of our lives is really the flesh, the human flesh, whenever really the problem is sin, the human nature, the human corruption. Uh, And so you'll, you'll see this even go so far. I've had a conversation with a couple people, actually, where things like sexual relationships within a marriage or even having children are bad because you're producing more flesh. And that sounds really bizarre, but I think that's kind of the logical outworking. And what, so what you'll find is that ultimately this kind of um, gracious ascetic lifestyle kind of promoted in this view, but ultimately you find that the stress is on the solar spirit. And so that is what you're nourishing. That's what you're growing. That's what you're living in. That's what you're focusing on. Um, and how that's articulated differs. But in some shape or form, you ultimately find that the human body is something that's bad. And there's this emphasis on the human soul and spirit without recognizing that the human body was created by God as good as well. And that marriage was created by God and that sexual relationships within marriage was ordained by God and that children are a good gift of God. And so it just keeps going 
on and on. And then if we logically follow this, then we have the eternal Son of God taking on a corrupt and wicked flesh in the humanity of Jesus. And so that it just ripples and becomes problematic. The reality is, is that we are not Gnostic. We are creatures with flesh, blood, bones, spirit, soul, and all of it is being redeemed. And all of it was inherently good and corrupted by sin. Death and decay are the result of sin and the presence of sin. Um, and as Christians, we have freedom from the power of sin, but not the presence of sin. So our bodies still decay, but we have hope in the resurrection of the body where we will have a new body and be conformed to Christ's image and glorification. There's another aspect of Christian dualism that pops up, and it's kind of this idea of God versus the devil, though it's not necessarily dualism, but it, it's, it's weird. Um, it pits this idea of the devil as being eternal and equal to God, and there's this big looming question in the narrative of the universe, will God or the devil be victorious. And so that's another weird pop evangelical manifestation of, I think, dualist thought um, minimally. So that's going to wrap up this episode. I hope this was helpful. Um, these topics, these applications become particularly difficult for me because there's a lot you can say and track here. So I hope that this gives you something to think about and think through um, as we press on. So next we will get into uh, the paragraph of the sun so that'll be interesting i hope you guys are blessed by the series so far and i hope you have a wonderful wonderful week Send